Amen. While we're still standing, let me read a passage that we've been thinking about this whole series through, and then I'll pray. This is from 2 Timothy. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, meaning his coming, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So let me pray. Lord, we want as we've said numerous times over the past month, we want to be described by this verse that we want to be people that love your appearing. So help us tonight on this final night of this study that I pray has been fruitful. Help us to be people that are leaning forward into uh, the, the coming of our King and the victory of our King and let it produce in us confidence, boldness, and godliness. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat, folks. Thanks for coming out. Here's the outline tonight. You can see that uh, what we have there on the sheet. Um, I want to go through a bit of a quick review, and then I want to also talk about the return of Christ, a little bit of personal eschatology, if you will, and the resurrection, and then questions, which uh, can be just over what we talk about tonight, or really anything over the last four weeks, or maybe anything questions that you have about end times, and I reserve the right to say, I don't know. Uh, but I want to go through this kind of quickly so that we have some time for questions, uh, realizing that it is a school night. So the first thing is just a little bit of review over what we've covered. Uh, I want you to be familiar with this term hermeneutic. It is a, a kind of Bible study theological term that just, it's just a, a, a word that describes how you interpret the Bible, or it, think of it this way, it's the lens or grid by which someone views Scripture. And everybody has a kind of hermeneutic, a way, uh, an interpretive grid that they look at the Scripture through. And there's many different ways to look at different parts of the Bible or different issues or doctrines through various lenses. And what we have talked about the last couple weeks, the millennial views, uh, remember the the premillennial, centering on what is going on in Revelation chapter 20, in verses one through six, and Jesus, that when it talks about Jesus's return, those are her, those those millennial views are lenses, they're hermeneutics, they're grids through which you look at the Scripture. In particular, the timing of Christ's return. So, premillennial is looking at Jesus coming back before this millennium. That's something that comes after, and then after that's the final judgment. A postmillennial is looking again at Jesus coming back after this time of millennium, which is in the post-millennial view, this time of increasing Christianization of the world and culture, and the amillennial view, which I think is poorly named, really the, I think better stated, the realized uh, millennium is the view that Christ has been reigning, has always reigned, but in particular, when it speaks of the millennium in Scripture in Revelation 20, Christ has been reigning from the resurrection until he comes again, and so those are all grids. And another grid that I argued for the second week was this, this concept of the two ages and how in the New Testament, not exclusively, but by and large, there seems to be a kind of simplicity. Paul often and the other Bible writers, Jesus as well, speaks about this age and the age to come. And again, just like the millennial views, that is a hermeneutic, that's a lens by which you look at Scripture. I think that two-age view fits nicely with the amillennial view, which I said that I told you that I hold to, not passionately, 
loosely, but somewhat confidently. And then last week we looked at, uh, uh, and I, I think this was uh, helpful to me just in preparing it, looking at a way to read Revelation. And we talked about the different schools of interpretation. Those who think of it more historically, as if what's going on in Revelation 4 through 19 has been sort of linearly or chronologically um, uh, come to pass through the ages, or those, so that's a historical view, or those who would look at it in a preterist view that it's already happened in the past, or those that look at it in a partial preterist view that it's a kind of mix, or those that look at it through a futuristic lens or hermeneutic, thinking that what's going on in Revelation 4 through 19 and these symbols of these seals and bowls and trumpets is, is speaking about exclusively in the future, or the view that I think makes the most sense, this idealistic, symbolic view that it has touch points of application through history and in the future and even now, but it is a, a way of reading Revelation, and we talked about this idea of recapitulation, and that's just a kind of a theological word that means what's going on in Revelation is, is that John is just telling basically the same story over and over and over again in several series in different ways um, through different images and symbols and visions. And so, in that particular view, all of Revelation uh, applies really to all of God's people throughout time. I say all that to say that millennial views, the two-age view, which I think coincides with amillennialism, and reading Revelation in that recapitulation sort of way are merely tools, they're lenses, they're grids, they are hermeneutics by which you can helpfully piece together Scripture. Now, point, to point number four there under hermeneutics is that those lenses or any hermeneutic is very, very helpful, but it also has its limitations. So you have to kind of hold to hermeneutics as something that's really a good guide, but not necessarily the final authority. So the, the scripture itself, in fact, the God of scripture is the, is the authority, not the lens, not the interpretive lens by which through which we look at it. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you remember when we were going through uh, our study of the Gospel of John, and we were looking at this chapter in John 6, where John 6 is full, I think, of the doctrine of the sovereign election of God and salvation. So Jesus says in John chapter 6 that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. There's this certainty to election. And I think that particular chapter, along with many other verses in the Bible, fit together in a particular hermeneutic or lens or system of theology that we, I think most of us in this church would are familiar with, that if you've been around, you know that I would hold to, along with the other pastors and elders, of a reformed view of salvation, that God initiates salvation, that uh, it, it, salvation ultimately depends on the Lord. That is a theological lens and grid, which I firmly and passionately believe is true. But if you remember when we were going through John chapter 6, one of the interesting things about even like that lens of the sovereignty of God and salvation, and, and I'm not talking about eschatology right now, I'm wanting to make a point about the limitations of our systems of doctrine, 
is that in John chapter 6, Jesus is actually calling for an unregenerate crowd of people to believe in him. And when I read J.C. Ryle, this noted Calvinistic Reformed theologian from the 1800s, a famous, famous theologian, uh, his thoughts on that particular uh, passage where Jesus is actually calling for this unbelieving crowd to believe and he's actually commanding them to do something that they're not able to do unless they're amongst the elect that he says God has given him a few verses later. This is what Ryle says. And I want you to, here's the point I'm making, is that Ryle was a reformed theologian that believed in the unconditional election of God fiercely. But he held to that, letting passages that might in some way challenge his tight boxes of theology, he held to his lens loosely and he let Scripture be Scripture. And here's what, here's what Ryle says about John chapter, let me read to you, John chapter 6. I'm sorry for my voice. I know it's terrible. I just, I'm, I'm talking and I'm cringing. John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to this crowd and he says to these unregenerate people, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is John 6, verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then a few verses later, Jesus is going to say, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So do you see sort of the tension there? Unregenerate people, you must believe, but all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And this is what Ryle, a noted reformed Calvinistic preacher, theologian, pastor back in the 1800s, said about this hermeneutic. And I'm wanting to, wanting to make the point about the lenses through which we look at Scripture. He says, when our Lord says the Son of Man shall give you the meat or the food that endures to everlasting life, he appears to me to make one of the widest and most general offers to unconverted sinners that we have anywhere in the Bible. The men to whom he was speaking were beyond question carnal-minded and unconverted men. Yet even to them, Jesus says, the Son of Man shall give unto you. Here's Ryle's conclusion. To me, it seems an unmistakable statement of Christ's willingness and readiness to give pardon and grace to any sinner. It seems to me to warrant ministers in proclaiming Christ's readiness to save anyone and in offering salvation to anyone if he will only repent and believe. Here's what he says. Election, and this is the point I want you to understand, and then I want to take this principle and apply it to eschatology. Election, no doubt, is a mighty truth and a precious privilege. Complete and full redemption, no doubt, is the possession of none but the elect. But how easy it is in holding these glorious truths to become more systematic than the Bible and to spoil the gospel by cramping and limiting it. And so, 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 okay, so we're not talking about soteriology. We're not talking about Reformed theology. We're not talking about um, election and predestination or human responsibility. But the point that Ryle is making, let's apply that to eschatology and let's look at things. I, I think amillennialism makes the most sense. I think the two-age view makes the most sense. I think reading Revelation in a particular way makes the most sense. 
But you guys can get up and say, well, what about this verse? I know, gosh, that verse doesn't seem to quite fit so nicely in this system that I want to package up. I think my system fits where most of the most of the verses fit best in my system, but you may think that your system fits most of the verses nicely. My point is, is let's hold to these things and let's let the Bible have the final authority and let's not let our interpretive lenses be the thing that judges Scripture finally, but let's let Scripture actually have the final word and to some degree or another confound us. I, I think that's an important posture of humility. Now, let's not be wimpy people who say, oh, I just can't understand the Bible because it's... No, 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 no. Don't do that. Remember we talked about this Sunday, about even like the doctrine of the incarnation. Go as far as you can go, but... but but don't think that you can wrap the Bible up in a little box and put it on the shelf and mark it amillennialism or postmillennialism or Calvinism or whatever. Stand under the Bible, not over the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's some essentials in Christian. And so I think then, uh, I think the best hermeneutic above anything else is a Christ-centered, that Christ, you know, the Christ is the lens through which we look at everything. And I think that's the best way to look at Scripture uh, essentials of Christian unity, I think this is what all Christians uh, should and must believe, uh, regardless of what system they may or hermeneutic they, they hold to, uh, that Jesus will physically return to earth one day. There will be a bodily resurrection of all people who have ever lived. Satan will be defeated and constrained forever. And there will be a final judgment in which believers join Christ for eternity while non-believers are separated from God's presence. Those four, truth, I th- four truths, I think, are essential to Christian orthodoxy and fidelity and all, everything that we've talked about, whether premillennial, dispensational, historic, postmillennial, or amillennial, or any way that you read Revelation, or any view that you have about the ages, all of them believe in those four essentials, and that is important. Tonight, I want to spend just a few minutes before we get into questions, just kind of open it up for whatever, just make Brad look silly time. Um, let's look at just the return of Christ, because... Speaking of the hermeneutic and not standing over Scripture, I don't want us to get to the end of this and sort of be like, like, we're, like we're, you know, juniors in high school taking our mandatory science class. Oh, well, it isn't nice when you mix sulfur and that, that it makes this chemical reaction. Well, isn't that nice? Let's not just observe doctrine. These great truths of the coming of Christ and the victory of God for eternity is meant to actually land in our lives. And so I want to speak a little bit here. We could spend a lot of time, but just briefly about how the New Testament speaks of Christ's return. Again, there is a bit of a tension, and this might be a surprising tension to you. There is a bit of a tension about how the New Testament speaks to the return of Christ. In one sense, it speaks of the sudden and unexpected return of Christ. So let me read these scriptures briskly. Matthew 24, 50. Jesus in this Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. I've said it often. Matthew 24 is a really important chapter and a really difficult uh, chapter to uh, piece together, but a gloriously wonderful chapter about the, the coming return of Christ. And Jesus says, the master of that servant will come on a day, he's speaking metaphorically of his return, will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. Luke chapter 12, verse 35, stay dressed for action. And Luke chapter 12 is is a lot of it's the same stuff that's going on in Matthew chapter 24. It's a parallel passage. And he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. 
and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he knocks, when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are the blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And Peter said, verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them portion of food, their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, meaning if we think, ah, Jesus isn't coming back for a long, long time. There's no imminence to Jesus' return. So I can eat, drink, and be merry and live how I want. I can go sow my wild oats in college, and then someday I'll get right with Jesus. That's not in the Bible. I'm paraphrasing. You know that, right? If you think that way, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating but the one who did not know and did what and, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating everyone to whom everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more i think the point the overarching point of this parable is be ready for the return of christ that's jesus's words in matthew and luke Paul picks up a similar theme, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that's a Pauline biblical way of expressing the return of the Lord, will come like a thief in the night. Titus 2, 12 and 13, the, the, the gospel has appeared, Christ has appeared to all, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's this waiting. There's to be this expectancy that Paul is writing to Titus about in the life of a Christian. And then Jesus himself, one of the last statements in the Bible, Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay to each one for what he has done. So we see this suddenness and unexpectedness emphasis in the new testament and we could read a lot more verses that speak to that tone but then and this is again primarily in matthew 24 and here's the tension there seem to be signs that seem to be at least many christians view it this way some would not but many christians would view that there are some signs that are mentioned in the primarily in matthew that seem to need to happen before Christ's return. So, you know, there's this suddenness and unexpectedness, but there's also these things that many Christians, and again, they will Christians will differ on this depending on your view of the millennium, that they will think these things need to happen before Christ's return, and many would say they don't seem to have happened yet. So Jesus, there seems to be this tension between his imminence and these things needing to happen. 
So, for example, Matthew 24, the great tribulation, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, I want to say that those who would hold to a post-millennial view or a partial preterist view would believe that those things happened during the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and in some sense they did. But if you piece together other things in the New Testament about tribulation, it seems that this is a symbolic, it had a kind of partial fulfillment in the first century, but also a greater fulfillment in the future would be other Christians' interpretation. So the great tribulation, many Christians would say that seems to still be out in the future. False prophets, Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 and 24, that just a few verses then, if anyone says, look, look, here's Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So some would say, well, that's happened to some degree, even in the first century. Yeah, maybe. That would be kind of the more post-millennial view. But yet, you know, it doesn't seem like there were great signs and wonders. So many, maybe most, would believe that that's still in the future. Signs in the heavens. Verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So there seems to be some sort of cosmological you know, disturbance that precedes the coming of Jesus and that hasn't happened yet. Although some Christians would say that's symbolic language for what happened in AD 70. And then in 2 Thessalonians, the coming of the man of sin and, and rebellion, 2 Thessalonians 2. Boy, we could study just 2 Thessalonians itself as a kind of eschatology study, but let me read this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, that clearly seems in the future. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word. I'm reading from 2 Thessalonians 2. Or a letter seemed to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So, boy, I mean, I hate to just read that scripture and just summarize it real quickly, but that seems to be, at least most Christians, 
in the history of the church has interpreted that as something that needs to happen in the future. And there's a lot going on in those 10 verses that seem to happen before Jesus can return. That's the point I'm making. I'm just trying to draw this tension, right? And then um, the, salvation, the salvation of Israel, Romans chapter 11. Uh, of course, you remember four or five years ago when we went through Romans 11. You have your notes. You can refer to them now. Uh, Romans chapter 11. I don't have time to get into this too deeply. But I want to make the argument that I think that um, when you are reading in the New Testament, you have to read very carefully what the writer, specifically Paul, means by Israel. Sometimes when he says Israel, he's talking about ethnic Israel. And sometimes he's talking about spiritual Israel, which is the people of God. Most of the time in Romans, when he's talking about the Israel, the people of God, the true people of God, like in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 9, those that inherit the promises, I think he's talking about those who are in Christ, the one true Israelite who inherits all the promises of God. But he does say in Romans chapter 11 that God is not done with ethnic Israel, even though ethnic Israel is not the center of God's interpretive and God's redemptive plan. He's not done with ethnic Israel. And in Romans chapter 11, I think Paul makes the point in verses 25 and 26 that a great number of ethnic Jews are going to be regathered and before the return of Christ, there's going to be a great evangelistic outpouring in upon ethnic Jews and they will be regrafted into true Israel, which is Christ. And there's lots of different interpretations as to how that happens. But my point is, is that there's many Christians, not all, but many Christians think that the salvation or this great evangelism of ethnic Jews is something that is still either beginning to happen or in the future. I say all that to say that the return of Christ, even in itself, has some tension, views. In one sense, it's, it's spoken of suddenly and unexpectedly, but in another sense, primarily by Jesus in Matthew 24, there seem to be things that need to happen before his return. Do you just get that tension? Do you get that tension? So how do we put this tension together? Well, I think that this is a perfect example of where we just need to, we need to apply Ryle's principle, Ryle's logic, J.C.'s Ryle, to not let our system cancel out any part of the Bible. And when I read in the Bible that I need to be ready, then I need to be ready. And when I read in the Bible that God still has things to do, then that means that he's going to do that through the church, and I need to get about working for the Lord and building the kingdom, or bringing as much of the kingdom here as the kingdom is coming. Does that make sense? So you see this kind of tension. If it was all just the imminent return of Jesus, we would all, you know, we would all move, we would all like move to, you know, Montana and have a compound and just wait for Jesus. And if it was all, it's going to be, you know, just do all these things and we knew when it was going to be, then there would be no imminence. So there's this tension where the New Testament Christian, I think, is, is leaning forward saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but not in a way that produces in them a kind of inactivity because they're just waiting and waiting and waiting, but they're waiting knowing that God still seemingly has redemptive purposes to happen, and I'm part of it as the church, and so let me be busy even as I'm waiting. Does that make sense? 
And, and that's my best answer at how to piece this together. Let me just read to you from 1 John, not only on a, a kind of a, uh, just you know ministry level, but on a personal level. This is the logic of John. He says in 1 John chapter 2, we, we've been reading through 1 John um, in just our scripture reading on Sundays, and John says, 1 John 2, verse 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's a great sentence. I mean, to live in such a way that you don't have to say, ugh. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so I think John's logic is just, man, let's like be busy, serve the Lord and live in such a way that when he comes, you're not like, oh, man, I wish I wasn't doing this or I wish I wasn't in this particular mind frame or I wish I wasn't whatever. Live in a way of expectation, but be busy. And then he leads us into the next point that we're going to be like him, which is our resurrection hope. But let me just hammer home this point under return of Christ, Roman numeral two, letter B, point three. I think that the posture, the tension of these two hermeneutics, one being the imminent return of Christ, the sudden and unexpected return of Christ, which seems to be supported by a lot of scripture, and the view that stuff has to happen before Jesus returns, bring us to this place of tension where it should produce in us a readiness and I think an, a kind of fruitfulness that produces godliness and mission and evangelism. And I think that's how the Christian should live. Let me just end real quickly with just resurrection hope, just to kind of make sure we understand what happens when we die, and then I'll, I'll stop and, and um, we'll, we'll ask questions or make comments or correct Brad. The Bible is clear that there will be a resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. I won't take the time to read those verses, but Jesus speaks of it in John chapter 5. Uh, Acts chapter 24, Luke talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And this famous parable that Jesus offers at the end of Matthew where the sheep and the goats. There is this resurrection of the sheep and the goats. And all of humanity is really boiled down into either sheep or goats. So that you're either in Christ or out of Christ. You're either in Christ, you're a sheep, or you're either out of Christ, you're a goat. And uh, so that, that's the resurrection and the judgment. The believer's hope of the resurrection is a constant and consistent motivation for the Christian in the New Testament. And I just want to make sure we understand what happens when we die and then what happens when Jesus returns, regardless of when we may think that is. Jesus, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1. So if we were to be, if we're Christians and we were to um, die, you know, tonight, this is what Paul says happens to Christians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means more, fruit, more fruitful labor for me. Yet what which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, meaning to die, for that is far better. So Paul views departing, dying, as being with Christ immediately. 
Second Corinthians chapter um, five says something very similar. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight, Paul says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body, meaning dead and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So to be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. And so when we die, when we breathe our last, if we're in Christ, in one sense, our body goes physically into the ground and eventually decomposes. And our spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord. And that is what, over the years, theologians have called the intermediate state. I think it's fine to call that heaven, but it's not the final new heavens and new earth. That comes at the return of Christ and the resurrection of believers. And so Paul speaks about that in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, the logic is clear. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, so meaning resurrected, dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, as speaking of the future resurrection, to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is tipping us off that there's a final future, we can call it consummation or glorification or resurrection of the saints that awaits us. And he says the same thing in, in verses 18 through 25. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us, meaning future. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I think that's referring to the reuniting, the resurrection of the spirit with the glorified body. And he says, I'll skip down to verse 22, uh, or verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain future the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Speaking about the resurrection. And for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the whole creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning it's in us, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's this future finalization of our salvation the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience so he's speaking there of this final glorification consummation resurrection where our spirits meet our bodies and we become like him philippians chapter 3 verse 20 and 21 speaks about this uh, he says, Paul says, he says, our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Listen to this, verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So Paul's talking about this changing, this resurrection, this glorification that awaits believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let me just summarize that briefly. Paul is saying that there's coming a future time when Jesus will come and he's going to come. I want you to see the logic. Where's 1 Thessalonians? It's in the New Testament somewhere, isn't it? There it is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not, so the logic, Paul is saying to these Christians whose Christians' friends have died and they're wondering what happens to people who are dead when Jesus comes back. And here's the picture Paul paints for them. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may, meaning dead, that you may grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, resurrected, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So meaning when Jesus comes back, with him are going to be all of those who have died, their spirits who are with him, the heavenly army, the heavenly hosts of all of the redeemed are going to return with Jesus with him when he comes. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that? Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's the picture. All these Christians who are alive during the time that Jesus comes back, he's coming back with all of the redeemed, their spirits. The trumpet's going to sound. Their dead, this is the picture. Their dead bodies are going to be resurrected, whatever form they're in. I mean, God can create something out of nothing. Even if they've been, de he's going to re, they're going to rise. Their spirits will meet their bodies resurrected first. And then in the twinkling of an eye, those that are alive during that time will be changed. And so he goes on to say, for the Lord himself will descend and the sound of the trumpet. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord always. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And you said, okay, wait a minute, Brad. You added some stuff to it. You said that we will be changed, but it doesn't say that in 1 Thessalonians. Where are you getting that from? Well, I'm getting that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Let me read this to you, and then I'm going to land this plane. This is what Paul says, and I want this to produce in us hope. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So this is another description of what we just read about in 1 Thessalonians 4. We shall not all sleep, meaning we won't all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. So the dead, their spirits are coming with Jesus on the clouds. They'll be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So they'll be glorified, boom. We'll be glorified, boom. For this perishable body must, uh, boom's not part of it. I just watched a lot of football when I was a kid. John, but for this perishable body must put on the imperishable body and this mortal body must put on immortality. And what is that referring to? That's referring to the verses in Philippians where Paul says, we will be like Jesus, glorified, real, flesh, sinless, forever, changed, glorified like Jesus forever. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's not just victory over sin. It's this final, full victory over everything that's against us. Death. Everything. He does it. And what's the conclusion? Just hunker down, move to Montana, and separate from society? No. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Notice Paul's logic. Because all of these things are true and certain, be busy now. Be busy now. That's, that's wonderful logic. So that's the resurrection hope of the believer. And the Bible's just laced with that. And if, here's my point, if we preach a type of Christian living gospel that says all of the goodness, all of the benefits of justification are merely to be tasted in this life to make us happier and healthier now, we undercut the main thrust of the Bible, which is the resurrection, resurrection hope of the Christian. Yes, there are a thousand and one benefits to have in living for Christ in this life, but there's so much more in the next. And so let's hold both of them and let's always be looking towards that even as we are busy now. Okay, that's it. Questions, comments, corrections. <clears throat> Go to a microphone. Yeah, Scotty. You can move that little mic up and down and I think it should be on. Yeah, I don't think it's on. Is it on? Maybe somebody could turn that one on too. So, huh? yeah, it's on now. Yeah, I was just wondering about cremation. So no, when about cremation, cremation, when Christ comes back, yeah, if you've been cremated, you'll hmm. still. Yeah, of course. I mean, think about think about a soldier who, um, uh, you know, has been blown up, uh, or somebody that, uh, you know, or, or just somebody that died a long, long, long time ago, and they're just completely dust. So it's not like God is. Um, I I don't I don't like cremation. Um, I don't have a Bible verse for it. But people have asked me about it in the past, and I don't know. I just it doesn't. But but I but I want to be sympathetic to cultures where you know maybe there's disease or something like that, and um, you know like my brothers and sisters in India, our brothers and sisters in India. There are parts of the church there that because of. I don't know. I, I just I, I think that if you have the opportunity to not do it, I think it's probably better because to me it just sort of seems to honor just the renewal of the body. But don't feel bad if your mother or father or grandparent was a believer and they're cremated because it's not like God is bound. I mean he can make he made he made everything out of nothing. <laughs> so so don't don't fret. Don't fret if that's the case. Dr. Derringer asked the question, I would say rhetorically, God is not bound by the law of conservation of mass, and I would say, yes, God's not bound by that law. <laughs> good, 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 good statement. Anybody else have a question? Good question, Scotty. Yes, Taylor. Yes, didn't want to come to the mic. But she made the point that, you know, from just data from just you part of the curve 
being in return can you go to that mic is this not on yeah can you go to that maybe it might be a battery issue yeah yeah i think maybe the batteries uh, yeah. i couldn't hear that it was not coming on yeah um jess didn't want to come to the microphone yeah yeah it's just shy yeah but she made the point that um in the curse uh god said from from duster created from duster return yeah so to the point of cremation it seems to follow that miss your return to dust and, and cremation yeah. and so but that with the resurrection it, it's the curse being undone yeah it's the curse being, so yeah. It, I amen. Think, uh, amen yeah it's the curse being undone absolutely yeah the consequences of sin is death it's the decomposition of all that is reconciliation or of, of, of fellowship with god and it is reversed absolutely that's a good good way to think of it good point jessica <laughs> John, just some. I just had a some observations. Number one, your cold medicine seems to be working because your voice seems to be getting better. Okay, <laughs> um, it's it's, it it's, it's like a foretaste of, of the we should all yeah. be changed. Yeah, uh, but the others, looking at scripture that has already been fulfilled, uh -huh. many many prophecies in the Bible have already been fulfilled. Yeah. One, they're very, if you look at them prior to the fulfillment, let's just take two, for example, uh, Psalms 22 uh -huh. and Isaiah 53. Yeah. I, I think that anybody looking at that before the coming of Christ would have had a hard time figuring out, number one, that that was Christ. Maybe Isaiah 53 you would. Yeah. And, number, and, and also what that was even talking about. But in retrospect, it's incredibly clear. I mean, mm -hmm. that they were mm -hmm. fulfilled to the letter yeah. in a way that is unmistakable. And I think that all of these scriptures that we read, the prophecies that we read in retrospect after we have lived through it and seen it, will, it will be clear to us what all of those prophecies meant yeah. and will be easy to understand and we will all say together that, hey, it happened just like the Bible said it would happen. Yeah. Even though it's not real clear to us yeah. uh, right now. The other comment. I, I just want to say, like, amen and amen to that. Amen. I mean, I think when you were talking, John, I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 13, like we see through a mirror dimly right now, mm -hmm. but then we shall know. You know, mm -hmm. so it, yeah, absolutely. And then the other one about, the, you know, Christ saying that he will come as a thief in the night. Yeah. And, and that it will be sudden and, and, you know, we need to be watchful. In reality, when he came the first time, the yeah. situation was essentially the same. Yeah. By that, I mean there were people stumbling around, had no idea that the Messiah was coming, even though it was clear, it, it would be clear yeah. if you studied the Old Testament yeah. that he was going to come yeah. and he was really going to come at that time. But And he even upbraided the uh religious leaders for not recognizing the time of, of his arrival. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it could be very much the lot the same thing is that it ought to be evident. It ought to be clear to everybody because of the scriptures that are already in the Bible, but yeah. people are just blinded yes. to spiritual things. And yes. that's what he's really addressing. Yeah. That's a great point, John. And it actually dips into um, just, soteriology because it's like you know how could they not see well the mind that is set on the flesh just cannot discern the things of god 
and let's not, you know, let's, salvation is of the Lord. And only he can open the eyes of, eyes of the blind. And so um, it, it, it makes me think, when you were talking to him, it made me think of like Matthew 28 at the end, after the Great Commission. Jesus is getting, he's, he's resurrected, he's appeared, he's been with them for 40 days. And some, it says right before the Great Commission, verse 17, and some of them doubted. But we would have been, no, let's not, let's not like, have, we, we, would have, we would have been amongst that lot maybe too. The point being that it's the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind. And he uses scripture, but yeah, so praise God. Good point. Any other points, questions? Yeah, Ed, our resident Golden State Warrior fan. Um, Are they going to win the West this year, Ed? I'm hoping so. But okay. Yeah, well, I'm, I've been hoping that the Chargers would win a Super Bowl for about 40 years, so <laughs> yeah, there's no prophecy of that, yeah. Um, I know I know what I'm trying to ask, but I don't know if I can get it across right. Yeah. I'm, uh, the thing that I'm, this kind of stuck in my head when I'm thinking about this hermeneutic that mm -hmm. we, you know, whether we intentionally do it or not, yeah. the way we view Scripture, how much does this, uh, these different escorts, Theological views. Uh -huh. how, how much does that affect us? Like if we're reading through the Old Testament, you know, you know I mean, I mean yeah. how, do you, how do you deal with some of the, the, the stuff correctly? Yeah. Well, that's a great question, Ed. Um, I think it. I think how you view those things is going to greatly impact how you view the Old Testament. In particular, for example, like Daniel. And an understanding of what's going on in Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks of Daniel and the 70th week. So premillennials and amillennials and postmillennials uh, are going to do different things with that. And so it's, yeah, it, it is going to greatly impact that. Uh, the scriptures, the prophecies about what, what is Isaiah talking about when he's talking about like in Isaiah chapters 40 and 60s around in there. When he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, or this this seemingly glorified um, time of peace, uh, uh, the the uh, premillennial is going to look at that and say that's going to be talking about the millennial kingdom. The amillennialist is thinking that's it turned that's the new heavens and the new earth, and the postmillennial is going to look at those verses and going to see like what's going on in Isaiah 60 and other chapters as being a description of the Christianized world. So that's a perfect example of how these grids will affect how you read certain Old Testament prophecies. And I'm just saying, let's have those conversations. Let's hold to it. Let's be persuaded by one view or another, but let's hold to it lightly because I think we all end up ultimately with the same conclusion that Christ is the victor regardless of how we might time those prophecies. But that's a great question. It, it, I think to answer your question, how you what hermeneutic you have is going to greatly impact how you in, um, read Old Testament prophecy, or just how you time it out. And, and yeah, like, you know, I'm thinking about like um, you picking out commentaries, yeah, to help you with the, mm -hmm. the hard parts. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've read some, and then I was I was yeah digging what they had to say, and then I find out well this. 
particular guy had this kind of end yeah. time view, and then it's like, okay, am I? Yeah. Should I be? You know, it's not right. Well, it's I, really confusing. I know it is, and I think, but but I don't want us to be. The, the problem with this is I don't want you to like think of people that might be in a different eschatological camp than you or in a different soteriological camp than you. Don't view them, as long as they're faithful Christians, don't view them as like the opposition. And I know you're not. I know you're not doing that. But I do think that we can, un- and I, I'm guilty to, about this because I, you know, I, I kind of have strong views about stuff and I got opinions. I mean, you guys know that. And I will, um, it, I have to fight against making uh, like a straw man or a boogeyman out of a fellow Christian's opposing view on stuff. And so um, I think just the more you immerse yourself in these, the more you're aware of them, the more you kind of say, ah, this is where that guy's coming from, and that's why he said that. And I may disagree with that, but I can really benefit from 99% of the other stuff that he says here, so praise God for that, you know. And you kind of learn to sort of, you know, take off the meat and eat it and spit out the bones. And we have to do that with everybody. You have to do that with me to some degree. Come on. I mean, be a Berean. Be, be somebody that, like, that, that, that wants Christ, not a particular doctrine or man or system. You know, that, so so it, you're, you're making my point for me, Ed. I, you're nodding like, okay, Brad, I got you. I got you. All right. I, yeah. Amen. Good point. Yeah. Questions? Okay. Alva. A comment first. Yeah. Uh, my dad said that the reason Paul wrote that the dead in Christ would rise first, and then those of us who remain would be called up, is because the dead in Christ have got six feet further to travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, that was my comment. Yeah, that was good. The uh, Christian humor. Do you take the 25th chapter of Matthew there? The, 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 the 24th chapter? The 25th. 25th chapter. Uh-huh. Where the ten virgins, this parable of the ten virgins. Do you think that is the coming of Christ being talked about? Or do you think it's uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb? Um, well, Alva, I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to look at it. Let me read it. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. So to answer your question, Alva, I think, and this is one of the reasons why I like an amillennial perspective, I think it's actually referring to both because I think the coming of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb are kind of like they're, they're, they're happening at the same time. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, so I think, it, I think it's talking about both. Good question. Anybody else? Anybody else? Oh, my daughter got up, but she is not walking to a microphone. She's walking away, so it's st- stump dad. Okay, thank you, Arabella. 
Uh, anybody else? Uh, she gave me an, she gave me the stink eye right before she closed the door. Anybody else? All right. I hope this has been helpful, um, and I don't want this to just be, um, you know, merely theoretical. Wherever you are, let me just reemphasize and end with wherever you are. There are no second-class citizens in Christ. There are no JV. Christians, there are no second string Christians, there are no lesser than Christians. Um, if you're in Christ, regardless of where you may be, you're a brother and sister, we can talk about these things humbly, but let's grow, let's, let's hold on to this particular area of doctrine um, as tightly as we can, but not so tightly that we have to avoid certain scriptures let's hold on to christ more tightly and to each other as well and um, let's be the type of people that paul talks about in second corinthians 4 that just are leaning forward that love his appearing um, so i pray this has been helpful um, and let me pray and i may n i i i'll stick around for a little bit but i don't want to get too close to you because um, i don't want you to get what i got so let me pray Lord, thank you for this time and your word for these past four weeks. Uh, Lord, uh, in, it's easy that you just, you know, we think in America that we're going through difficulty, but Christians around the world have in the past and currently are experiencing much more difficult times. And so we pray that you would fortify them um, with these truths as they come across them. We pray that we would be people that are marked by uh, eternity, heavenly mindedness that actually produces in us an earthly fruitfulness, a zeal for evangelism, a passion for missions, uh, a loose hold on material goods, a loose hold on earthly reputation, and a desire to grow in godliness so that none of us would would wince or be ashamed when you come, if you were to come in our lifetime, or if we were to breathe our last to stand before you. I think about that verse in Hebrews that we've looked at, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. That's so glorious. And let us do our part to not be ashamed when we stand before you. And so, Lord, let, let our study of eschatology produce in us a longing to be more like Jesus, to tell more people about Jesus, and to be busy doing his work so that we're ready for the bridegroom. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.